Sebastian passed under the arch of the back gate of Trinity College, crossed Fenian Street amid the wild maneuvers of cars and cars, walking with head bent, looking up now and again to chart the territory ahead, up Merrion Street, and the sun came out shining on the government buildings, secretaries with morning hips swinging, turning in the doorways, all their lips bright red, red coats across their broad backs. I go on, faster, along the lower Bagot Street. Quick right, lash up Pembroke, and around the square with pretty Georgian doors. I crossed Fitzwilliam Place, and touched the iron fences as I went by, till I opened a narrow gate and went down the steep steps. So, this is quite a strange business, looking into a grave, as it were, but uh, with none of them coming alive. If anything could happen, it could happen in the catacombs, anything at all. Bisexuality, homosexuality, normality, anything. Well, in Dublin itself, it was a place to repair to after the pubs closed. The last resort was always the catacombs. It was a place where people knew that they could congregate there late at night. It was a permissive place where you could arrive with drink and continue your drinking through the evening, I guess. And, of course, as things would progress through the night, all kinds of things might develop then, and people might disappear into various rooms and maybe even close the doors and so on. You would expect to see the so-called, I guess I'm using a, a word which may not apply at all, say the regulars. In fact, they were constant presence uh, around, and being friend of me was certainly one of them, um, there was uh, Tony McInerney, there was Gaynor Stephen Christ, and then a collection of a lot of other folk who would turn up there, some of them academics. I think Schrodinger, uh, one of the, I think he was a great mathematician. Uh, a few people of that nature also would turn up there. It suddenly just caught me. I turned around and looked at this fencing here which has never been touched I mean it's just aged like that and obviously it's exactly the same fence that was here in those days when you bring back these memories the closest thing to it is to walk through a cemetery and visit these old graves this is what this is it's a grave site of uh, probably with more meaning than most cemeteries have.
It has to be remembered that when I came to Europe, I came out of the U.S. Navy. So, you know, the world wasn't any surprise to me. And uh, from one's background in the war, you knew all kinds of settings, cities, places, and all kinds of life. So Dublin, if anything, was a sort of strange and different in its strange way. Uh, people sort of collected there from all over the world after the war because it was the only place where you could still have bacon and eggs and uh, uh, steaks, if you liked, or whatever. And it uh, became a kind of area where people gravitated to celebrate, I suppose, uh, peacetime. And, of course, they all behaved pretty wartime when it came to, um, you know, getting up to their antics down in the catacombs. I think a dentist might have been uh, occupying the upper floor, and somebody may have put a sign up in those days, um, extractions upstairs, insertions downstairs. <laughs> so I'm quite amazed to uh, come and stand here, which I've never done before. I may have passed this a few times, and wondered which building it was, not knowing the exact number until recent times. So when more interest seemed to be got in this place. I uh, had a girlfriend who lived down there. And so I had sort of two or three different kind of introductions. And certainly that was the first time and this is a very attractive girl who had a lot of admirers. So you'd sometimes meet some of these admirers. One was a great violinist, and uh, so he would entertain people. Another was a baron from Belgium who was the black sheep of his family and told not to come home until he could straighten himself out. But he was sent money every sort of couple of weeks. And uh, what would happen is, is that he would pawn his clothes when he'd spent all the money that he'd received from the family and then would go around in his pajamas in the catacombs and um, redeem his clothing afterwards when the money, the next stipend, arrived. But meantime, he was totally taken by this violinist who was a brilliant violinist, and he would beat his head against the wall until blood came. He was so transported with the music. So this was a strange part of the catacombs. Hello, hello. hello. <laughs> You? you must be Mr. Van Dieven. That's right, yes, indeed. Yes, I remember you. Oh. The catacombs. Yes, You won't remember me. Quite amazing, isn't it? Isn't it? Back here. About 60 years ago. Yes. Mind boggles. <laughs> isn't that astonishing? Oh. I read all your books. Oh, my goodness, With very great really? enjoyment. <laughs> Terrific. You've oh, done wow. terribly well. Used me more than anything. Well, I, I expect you've stopped doing it now. Well, no, I'm... Oh, well, I suppose I did look pretty good at that time. Well, that's a long, long time ago. I was there alone, and my hairbrush fell out of the window. I was a bit, I was a bit leery of the icky woman. I didn't know him. I knew there were wild parties and things. And Anyhow, he was very, very nice. He said, come and have a cup of tea, and I did. And then he invited me and another girl to a party, and we went. 
bit wild. I didn't like anything too wild, you know. It got used to get pretty hectic in the catacombs. I mean, I think some people were on drugs even in those days. I don't know what they were on, pep pills or something. And also they would drink very heavily and there were sort of really bad fights. It was a bit like the Hellfire Club, although on a rather different social level. You know, it was great fun. I mean, it was, you're young and you know, it was gay and you could forget your troubles there. Everybody was always laughing. They weren't fighting. Dickie, nobody wanted to live in England after the war. It was utterly bleak. There was rationing, um, lots of restrictions. So Dickie, I don't know how he got the catacombs, but he did. And so he rented out all the rooms and had parties and made money the best way he could. And would do anything almost. He was about six feet and very slim, and he had grey eyes, very good features, very nice voice, and uh, he's charming. People used to say, what a pity that he's not straight, or that he's gay or queer. They didn't call it gay in those days. But it was no use, that was the way he was, and he used to tell me all about it. And uh, He said, you know, Journey, I don't mind them being there, but I don't want them to stay for breakfast. I want to get rid of them. And uh, then he'd say to me, that one isn't so bad, you can have him if you like, and I never did. We were all very poor, you've no idea of the poverty. I mean, he hadn't got a job, and he had been in the army, and he'd been a batman, actually, though indeed he was far from a batman. We lived in pawn shops and things, and Dickie used to take back all the empties, you know, the Guinness bottles, and he got money on them, and of course he charged money for the rooms. I mean, for example, there was a pink parlour. Gaynor Christ had that. That was very expensive. It was 25 shillings a week. And, Dick, and David Regan afterwards, of course, Tony Cronin had the East Wing. And that was... How much was that now? I to think. Could have been 18 shillings. It might have been more. And then somebody else had the snug. That was seven and six a week. No window. And Brendan Byrne slept on the kitchen table, but his... Feet trailed over the end of the table. But I mean, he was always drunk, so it didn't matter. No, I'm oh. busy. Oh, you're going to do more? How lovely. Writing. I can't oh, tell I you how much I, I enjoyed it. I didn't realise he was just going to stand talking. I can't stand. I she I'm can't stand. stand. She oh, must go in. Okay. I'm very slow. Don't mind me. Sectioned the off into the scene of all the coolies, but it was all one big room. Yes, this was a, an entirely great big uh, room in the frontier, and then of course it headed down a long passage down to the rear. But um, I suppose that gave it the aspect when people referred to it as the catacombs. It would have been this kind of Probably the uh, yes, practically fan vaulting of the ceiling. Yes, yes, indeed, the vaulting would have done that because it clearly had that atmosphere of 
somewhere in Rome and you know to see this as just an office very attractive in its way and its bookshelves and stock of things here references I think this room was probably the kitchen of the original building Bournemouth was very sort of enclosed during the war and it was not terribly frightening but we had an air raid every night in the sense that the sirens went off because the bombers used to come over in through that part of the south coast to get to places like Birmingham and Coventry. But it was all this being kept awake all night because we were all herded down under one of those nasty table shelters which were what they called Morrison shelters, yes. The Anderson shelters was the thing you dug a pit for in the garden. This was in the middle of your kitchen and so big from side to side and end to end that you'd be edging around it sideways to get from one side of the room to the other. And then you crawled underneath it and lay inside, squashed against a lot of other people. Oh. And um, you couldn't move out of the area because they had this regulation about within 10 miles of the coast, I think you had to get a permit to travel. And I came over to Ireland when I was 21 uh, with the intention of studying acting at the, um, I think it was called the Gaiety School of Acting. And um, then I married somebody, um, Tom Willoughby, whom I met at this School of Acting. And shortly after I married him, uh, he was diagnosed with TB and went into Rialto Hospital uh, sanatorium. And um, I had my elder son some months after that. Well, I was in the position of a single mother for a while. He, um, he recovered, uh, but he was away now for the first year and a half. I got to know some people. I got to know the Keating family. And I think there's son, Paul, who was in the uh, Department of Foreign Affairs, took me to a party at the Catacombs. Well, when you went in, there would usually be a party in full swing. Somebody would be singing, ooh, rebelly songs, you know. And um, this would be in the front room. And if there were an awful lot of people there, they would kind of overflow into the corridor that went backwards. It was a treat. If somebody said, would well, you want to go to the catacombs tonight, can you make some arrangement about uh, Anthony? That was the baby. And um, I had a very nice neighbour here called Ulrika Donnell, and she was the almoner at Bagger Street Hospital, and she would look after him for me for the evening. To me, it was a great adventure. I mean, my life had not um, had any drunken parties in it heretofore. And uh, this, me, was wild life in Dublin, you know. Because I hadn't seen very much of the world and it was all new to me and I enjoyed it. This room must have been the kitchen and it was the whole width yes, of the house. A big barn of a room. And everybody playing with spoons and drinking Guinness and laughing and singing. Getting drunk and fighting. And I don't think they ever had a yes. sober breath. Well, yes, every activity mankind was capable of took place 
right down here. <laughs> Hello. Sheila. Yeah. How are you? It's many years since I've seen you. Yeah. How are you? Fine. Fine. How are now, you? I'm hanging in there. Listen, we were Hello. on the chair. <laughs> I met you darkest years ago. Well, I just remember coming down the stairs and you came into the kitchen. I didn't think there was anything. I remember the big kitchen and all the little cubby holes off it at the back. When you look at photographs of all young people, they look beautiful, you know. Youth carries you along a lot, you know. So I suppose I was considered pretty or whatever the current word was. <laughs> I was certainly a lot thinner than I am now. I was very shy, very quiet, very inhibited in a way. Um, but I grew out of that, I hope. I was a student in the National College of Art and I qualified in, in the School of Sculpture. But I didn't, I taught actually for a year after that and then I got married. Well, Bob was um, a young lad in Belfast. He got involved with the IRA and Sean McBride brought him down here to Dublin. Um, and he was put up with Brendan Bean's grandmother. Um, and that's how he got to know Brendan. Brendan was a little boy at the time and he was very struck by his um, promise. And then when Brendan came out of Borstal, I can remember him arriving in our house and he was such a handsome young man, it's hard to believe. And he was so kind of clean and shiny skin and lovely curly black hair. And um, he became a very regular visitor to our house. They knew all the same people, you see. And uh, so he was kind of part of the group, really. Sometimes uh, a very obnoxious part of it, <laughs> but mostly fun. I heard of one woman, I think she was an English journalist, and she got off... Um, plane in Dublin airport got into a taxi and said take me to the catacombs <laughs> I think she thought it was a famous nightlife nightclub or bar or something you know of course nobody had ever heard of it <laughs> it was big and bleak and cold it was a big old fashioned tiled floored kitchen it was cold and unpleasant and people were sitting on the floor and I was at a couple of parties there that were good because you were with a lot of friends but the, a lot of people went in every night and it was just a kind of an extension of MacDade's. When I think of Tony Cronin and Des McNamara and um, Tony McInherney who I think is dead Peter Walsh, Christy O'Neill. Um, they were, Peter Walsh and um, Eddie Connell, they were the released Republican prisoners. You probably know about them. They were um, jailed in England, uh, I think just before the war, 1949, somebody was putting a bomb in something. And they were rounded up and they got very long sentences. And they were in quite grim prisons like Dartmoor and places like that. 
And then after the war, the Pope O'Malley, do you know who the Pope O'Malley is? Uh, well, he was a barrister, Ono O'Malley was his name. Um, and he started a crusade to get them released. And he was going back and forwards to England for quite a bit. And they were eventually then released. And they were mostly um, deported from England. So there was a bunch of them arrived together and they had a lot of time to make up, having been about 11, 12 years in a very grim prison. They would have been part of the group. And there was various other people. There were American GIs. You see, they, at the end of the war, they got um, an educational grant to study anywhere. But they were grown-up men. They weren't young students. They'd fought in a war. And they came at it from a totally different angle. It was one of the liberations, I think, of the students that they were, um, you know, they were more adult people, like Dunleavy and Gaynor Christ. You felt there was an awful lot of possibilities ahead of you. You know, you felt you wouldn't be doing what your parents did with a whole new generation. And there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of fun and a lot of parties and stuff like that. But um, it wasn't nearly as drunken and depraved as some of it comes through. In fact, we had an enormous innocence about us. We had less expectations. We lived in pretty grotty flats, you know. Were, uh, it may have been Pembroke Road or Waterloo Road, but it's not the Pembroke Road of today, you know. We had one gas cooker out in the landing and things like a gas fire that you had to put a shilling into. And um, so, like, we weren't living in luxury, so it didn't matter that the place was pretty grotty. It really mattered in who was there that night or who you went with. Or it's what you'd remember. And the songs and the fights and the romances. <laughs> Just being young. Well, it was simply an escape hatch for people to, you know, whose lives were difficult in other ways and it was a solution to other people. And uh, because of these congregating together, it produced this uh, world of, uh, well, some degree of celebration and uh, probably music and other things. So it became a great meeting place. Unlike um, the rest of one's life, I mean, I came from a very respectable, proper house. And I think my parents would have died if they hadn't even heard of the catacombs. <laughs> it was only a phenomenon which could only happen in Dublin and could only happen at that period. Like Sheila, I came from a very respectable background and these, this wildlife in Dublin, it was very sort of exotic to me and I was sort of staring at them all with my eyes bugging out, you know. Is, yeah. This is different. There was another sort of actual cave part. Maybe this has been built up in some way uh, over the years. But I remember there was a, a larger room mm. uh, off here to the right. I see they have some 
sanitary facilities well, in here. It went down in our day. It was more drunken than sexual, really. The drink took precedence. Though I enjoyed it up to a point, but I don't like people. I don't like a, 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 a sort of orgies, if you know what I mean. Well, it wasn't wife swapping. I don't think Dickie would have allowed it. He was he could control them, or anything like that. It wasn't a very sexy kind of orgy, but I mean, it would be rough. And probably they'd have it off with them afterwards, or maybe in some secluded corner. I mean, probably quite a lot of sex went on. I didn't want to get involved in that because, well, I was kind of fussy and I didn't want to. But they did go on. No inhibitions. They do what they liked. They, I mean, whatever took their fancy. Uh, I didn't because I'm not into that very much. You know, a bit choosy. Doesn't fancy the men there. And if they they sneak out, probably in the backyard, if they wanted to have anything more private. Well, they wouldn't be doing it on the kitchen floor or anything. I don't think you'd have got a very useful husband there. All the people I saw there were serious drinkers and with literary leanings, you know. It wasn't full of eligible bachelors, oh, no. I ran into Patrick Kavanagh, who was sitting there morosely nursing a glass of stout. And he said to me, you married? And I said, yes. I was about, I was about 21, between 21 and 22 years old. Do you breed from him? So I raised my eyebrows and said, I, I have a little boy. Huh, says he. I'll cover you for a fiver. It means that he would have sex with me if somebody paid him a fiver. It was utterly nasty and unpleasant. And I thought, yuck. I think people would sort of, you know, maybe pair off or other people know each other and so on and so forth. And I think probably as the night progressed, various rooms might sort of come in to uh, accommodate people who had, you know... Uh, long night intentions of one sort or another. I was pretty careful. I was reading uh, microbiology, and <laughs> I knew when to be careful or not. Most of the yes, this is all constructed. That would have been here, and that would have been open somehow. So this has all been re-established to be... I mind that the kitchen was more to the left, but when you came yeah. down the stairs, the kitchen was more that. Mm -hmm. As I remember, say, this aspect going back, as I move further into that room, I'd probably be able to see a little bit, tell exactly. It could have been the, a bedroom back there, I believe, if I get closer to it when... Uh, which was people Dickie's bedroom uh, I'm not sure where he did stay actually I remember going to a wedding with Gaynor Christ I think it was in the Shelburne and he'd managed to um, borrow you know the full morning dress and everything except for his feet he had a pair of white canvas shoes on his feet 
and I, there was a lot of maneuvering while he was going around trying to find somebody who would lend him a pair of shoes. And what had happened to the shoes was this. He had a very rich aunt in America who thought he should have a Great Dane dog, so she sent him a Great Dane, and suddenly this big dog arrived to look after, and the dog chewed up his shoes. That explained his wearing whatever he wore to go to some wedding, I believe. That's amazing that I would find that out after all these years as to why he was in the canvas shoes. That's right, I had yes. to come here to find it out. His great dame chewed up his shoes. <laughs> well, of course, he went off to Spain mm -hmm. and died there. And died there, yes. Yes, sir. I was intrigued by the fact that no one saw Gaynor die and saw him dead. Died on a journey back to the States. To South America on some ship that someone he met knew about the ship or owned it or something like that. Yeah. And uh, the story was he was taken off the boat uh, having drunk too much or something and uh, died either on the shore yeah. as he was went to hospital yeah. or somewhere. Poor thing, yes. But no one really seems to know the actual circumstances. That was the mystery. No one actually saw him die or saw him dead. Yeah, and he was buried um, in Tenerife. In Tenerife, yeah. yeah. And I sent someone there to take a photograph of the gravestone. It is there. But when the man who looked after the cemetery was asked about this particular grave, he began to laugh. Yeah. <laughs> so one always wondered whether Gaynor Christ actually was indeed buried there. Well, somebody must have put up a stone, if you think there's a stone well, there. Well, that's the point, yes, Is someone obviously did. But the one thing that was suspicious about the stone was there was a big cross on the stone yeah. carved in it, and if anything, that I know about Gaynor Christ was that he would not have a cross anywhere near him. I knew the man called David Regan who had that for a long time. Uh, and it was considered the most upmarket place for a lodger because he had several lodgers. There was something called the Pink Parlour that I didn't know anything about. But no, that was called the East Wing and it could be locked. So your possessions and things were safe while these rowdy parties were going oh, on. Oh, I see. I didn't realise those uh, elaborate names were used, the East Wing. <laughs> well, as I said, I we made little jokes all the time yes. to cheer ourselves up. <laughs> because there was a degree of elegance and the people here, without the property being particularly elegant. <laughs> Reviews. Ah. George Desmond Hodnett. And he, he had a very funny story about uh, during the emergency, he had been to some party out in Dunleary and being very poor like everybody else. Uh, he was walking home in the middle of the night and at that time he was deciding he'd, he'd learn the trombone and he had the trombone with him and his landlady objected to his playing the trombone 
and he thought, well, I'll walk along the strand. So he went way out on Sandy Mount Strand and started to play this thing. And then there were lights and people running and Gardy saying that he was signalling to submarines. <laughs> this is a familiar room here because this was the bedroom of my lady friend who uh, occupied this. And uh, I do remember too being able to see out into a sort of form of garden in the back. and. Uh, Obviously, those great big bars were here all those years ago, and uh, I didn't remember particularly. I'm seeing more now of the back of this than I did in those days. I was mostly here at night, so I can't really remember, uh, say, discerning the buildings that are clearly over on the next street. And uh, so it's a very haunting business, as I've said several times now. He was very kind, was Dickie, and he got a job as a barman in Welling Garden City, but he had heard that you get pensions in America at 60. Now, Dickie would be a good bit older than I was, 10 years at least. And he said, I'm going there, and we all said, oh, don't. And, but no, he'd made his mind up, and Ina Murphy, who was Dickie's great friend, and Dennis McClacuddy and myself, we all saw Dickie off at Southampton. It was terribly sad. I used to write to me and always send me a little money. And, you know, I like green chartreuse. It was my drink. And this is for a little green chartreuse. And then I didn't hear anymore. But, I mean, you see, I had no address. He kept moving about and I couldn't contact him. I was. He used to write to me. I was about the only person he wrote to and, he always made jokes and things. We had great fun. We had the same sense of humour. Very sad. He left me a lot of things when he went away. But, I mean, he left me bits of furniture and other odds and ends, you know. And I really was very sad when he went away. He kept in touch as long as he could. God knows what happened. I would imagine he died. He drank fairly heavily. I never heard. I was very sad about it. I was talking to Denise on the phone this morning. Denise Walsh in Spain I was telling her I was coming. So we had a chat. She lived in the catacombs and she was a very good friend of Dickie's. She had to pretend to be um, his fiance at one stage. Because at that time he was trying to get a gas cooker and you, you couldn't get it unless you were married or something, you know, a family. So she pretended to be his fiancé, so they got the gas cooker on that basis. <laughs> oh, we were having a good laugh. We were remembering bits, you know, and things we did and so on. Uh, I was going over with her the songs that people used to sing. And she was recalling the different people had their own songs. Uh, well, Dickie used to do a, a very camp version of Stormy Weather was his party piece. And Bevan uh, McNamara used to sing Green Sleeves. George Morrison, he's the film fellow, you know. Um, he used to sing this extraordinary English folk song that involved an awful lot of stamping of feet and shouting. <laughs> um, 
she said somebody complained to her father that they didn't like the company she was keeping, these homosexual men. And her father said she couldn't be safer. <laughs> well, some of them got married and some of them shacked up, I think. And, <laughs> and then they, they wouldn't be quite so poor. Things got better. Respectability also intervened. <clears throat> People got very conscious of their past and didn't want to associate with, say, indeed a place like the catacombs. Oh. I mean, it'd be hard to find people now admitting that they had anything much to do with the catacombs. You know, people move on. Nothing is static. And it was just a group of people that had all come together at a certain stage. And then, you know, they start going off in their different directions. And people's lives change. Stairs are familiar anyway. <laughs> Now, being old is perfectly frightful. You don't think you're ever going to be old, you see, when you're young. You see people hobbling about and you say, oh, dear, poor old things, you know. And then you get old yourself and you can't, and a piece of you inside is never old. You're still quite young. A little bit of the catacombs inside you. You're always young inside. The last of her life, she was being interviewed. Oh, <laughs> it's the last survivor. So pretty soon. We'll be at that stage. Okay. Goodbye. Very nice to meet you. Bye. Bye bye. Enjoyed all your books. Lovely. <laughs> Closing the gate now, and there, there's a little squeak as it closes, and uh, obviously for good in my case, that uh, I don't imagine I'll be down in the catacombs again. So one will say a gentle goodbye. The morning I got up, early and walked down Fitzwilliam Street. It was still dark. I heard a clip-clop coming along and the milkman singing. It was lovely. Jesus, I don't want to go back to America.